0: This is an Irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling... Wherever you sell with Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/tech. All lowercase. That's Shopify.com/tech.
0: Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest today is Melissa Stewart. In this conversation, Melissa shares a bit about her story of growing up in a fundamentalist church, the grief and heartbreak she felt when she lost it, and the types of writers and content creators that gave her hope during times of transition out of the faith. In particular, I want listeners, especially those who might be listening that do not identify as ex-evangelical or ex-Christian, to listen to how Melissa talks about how painful losing her original community was. Many evangelical commentators who talk about but not with ex-evangelicals write off those of us who have left evangelical communities as simply gleeful to go through the process. And that's not the case. Melissa and I also talk about how ex-evangelical spaces continue to evolve, how they are prone to being predominantly white, and how various platform features encourage different kinds of conversation. Melissa has over 200,000 followers on TikTok, and she talks about what that experience has been like as well. Overall it was a great conversation, and I'm glad I covered as much as it did. We couldn't explore every possible aspect of these topics, but the wonderful thing about today's media environment is... Conversation can continue. So check out Melissa's TikTok, where she relates her exvangelical perspective to her legal education, over at Melissa Jo Stewart. You can find a link in the show notes. You can also follow my TikTok account, which is still rather bare, over at underscore on TikTok and the same username at underscore on Instagram. Exvangelical is a production of the Post-Evangelical Post. You can support this podcast and all my other work by subscribing for 4 6 or $8 a month at postevangelicalpost.com. 25% of net revenue is donated each month. Supporters get access to ad-free podcast feeds, Discord access, and subscriber-only posts. Exvangelical is part of the Irreverent Media Group. Check out irreverent.fm for other great podcasts. All right, let's get into it. My guest today is Melissa Stewart. Melissa is a law student and a prolific TikToker. Melissa, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Blake. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be
0: here. Longtime fan of your podcast and your work on Twitter. So oh, Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm really <laughs> excited to talk to you and hear a little bit about your own story. As you know, as a listener, really I like to start at the beginning and talk about that fun experience of growing up in church. <laughs> I also like to whatever degree you're comfortable, like I also think a lot of geographical, regional stuff comes into play as well. So what area did you grow up in and what was your first sort of experience of church like?
1: Sure. So I grew up in rural Minnesota, a couple hours north of the the Twin Cities. And it was farm country. And I I grew up in a a fundamentalist Baptist church and K through 12 attended the school that was run and operated by that church. Hmm. So it was my entire life. My entire existence. I was I was there six, often seven days a week.
2: Mm. It was
1: my whole social circle. It was my entire support system. That place was absolutely everything to me. And it it had it had some ups and downs, <laughs> you know. As a as a kid, and as even as a, a teenager and and young adult, I mean, I I loved it. I thought that I loved it. When something is your entire community, you yeah. know. You you think that it's a a good healthy place to be, and it it obviously was not. There was some pretty uh, extensive abuse that happened there. I I dealt with some some sexual abuse from some men in the church and uh, just the the general normal mind fucking that comes along with evangelical Christianity fundamentalist Christianity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of the the general basis. And then when I was I don't know, maybe 18, 17 or 18, my parents who had been in a horrible, unhappy marriage my entire life, finally split. Mm. And my dad actually was the one that instigated the divorce. He told my mom he wanted her to move out, which was a relief for me because I had been wanting her to get out for almost as long as I could remember. But even though he was the one that instigated the split, and even though he was the one that was emotionally and mentally and spiritually abusive, the church blamed my mom. And Mm -hmm. looking back, I think that was the beginning of me questioning. I didn't consciously realize that for another few years, Mm -hmm. but watching my mom, I mean, she had been involved. My mom half ran that church, you know, she like, you know, in the way that women are allowed to, you know she was involved in all of the women's ministries. She coached volleyball team for the school. She was, I mean, she was everywhere doing everything. And they stripped her from all of her ministries. She wasn't allowed to coach anymore. I remember the principal of our high school, who had several daughters in the school, told my mom that he couldn't have his daughters coached by a divorced woman. She'd been coaching my whole life. It was like her favorite thing. And so, because I sided with her, I lost that church entirely and it was brutal like i still refer to that as like one of the great heartbreaks of my life because i was 18 like i was still you know kind of a kid i was still in high school at this right. point yeah and uh i mean my teachers my friends these people raised me and in my you know fundamentalist brain i thought well maybe they don't approve of my parents getting divorced, but why hasn't anyone called me or thought right. to check in on me? You know, I didn't do anything wrong here. Right. And, and looking, I mean, in, in hindsight, I'm grateful for that heartbreak because I don't know that I could have ever gone out if I hadn't had that split kind of forced on me. Mm. Um, but for, you know, I, I got married when I was 18 to a, a fundamentalist man who was 26 at the time and we'd met when I was 16 and he was 24. So standard fundamentalist Christian age gap, but not, you know, not, not healthy or okay. And we attended John Piper's church for a few years, which Bethel is that. Yeah. Bethel. Yeah, Bethel. Yep. Yeah, Bethel. Mm-hmm. And we, I don't remember which, uh, the Minneapolis campus and, uh, I, Never joined like officially. I I couldn't quite bring myself to. I had some commitment issues and some some you know so much hurt from what my last church had done to me that I had trouble with the idea of like really diving in and becoming such a part of a community again.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So yes, we attended that church and it felt so progressive. (laughs) compared to the church I grew up in, which again, like looking back on it is, is funny to say that out loud, that like John Piper's church felt progressive and liberal compared, compared to to how I was raised. You know, they were allowed to have like guitars and other instruments in their church. And my church was very strictly piano organ, you know, people wore Mm. pants to his church, which was just absolutely not something I was ever allowed to do. It was a little less stuffy and that, that felt like freedom to me. It felt like spiritual freedom. And then right around the age of 21, so I was, you know, 2010, 2011, I started to have like a real faith crisis. I couldn't tell anybody about that. Right. You know, this was, I mean, this was kind of before I I don't know exactly when you coined the term evangelical, but it was really before I was an extremely online person, and it was before I had found any kind of like centralized community of people who were, you know, questioning their faith. I'd never heard the term deconstruction, and when you are in, the, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar, but when you're in the church and you are starting to question everything. Questioning itself feels wrong, feels sinful, inspires guilt. Mm -hmm. So, for many years, I had this, or for a while, I had this kind of cycle of questioning and doubting, and then like feeling so guilty and diving into my Bible and praying and like being determined and repenting for this doubt. And then, you know, I'd be okay for a few weeks or a month, and then my Mind would start to to ask questions again, mm-hmm. and around this time, I stumbled across Rachel Held Evans' work, yeah, which was just monumentally important for me, absolutely, um, especially because and Micah J Murray too, and because both of them at that time were writing, they were both still very passionate Christians, but they were Christians who were openly wrestling with their faith yeah and that felt safe to me it felt I mean it still felt dangerous but it felt safer than you know than the this idea of like leaving Christianity entirely which I couldn't even conceive of at the time and so yeah so I started reading kind of their their work and Mm -hmm that slippery slope that the church warns you about <laughs> man that's real <laughs> they got that one part right <laughs> once once you start to question like well maybe hell isn't real maybe you know, maybe my church got that part wrong. Everything <laughs> fell apart after that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Though, honestly, sometimes I think there's two slippery slopes. One is to not being evangelical anymore. And one is to just being a Christian nationalist. <laughs> and you, <Yes>. choose, <laughs> yep. you choose one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you choose one.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah. So, once once I, you know, Rachel Held Evans kind of introduced me to this idea of, of, you know christian universalism evangelical Mm -hmm. universalism yeah and it was just like this question of you know when the bible says that all shall be saved like what if it actually means all and that little kind of twist of interpretation of biblical hermeneutics that just a very simple verse that hyatt always interpreted one way because that's what i've been taught And now had a different perspective, made my mind go, oh, this is like this is a text that that has multiple interpretations. And from there, and this was all silent. I mean, I wasn't sharing this with anybody. I was, I mean, I remember deleting my internet history after reading like (laughs) some of Rachel and Micah's blogs. Yeah. Because I was, I was afraid of, of being caught. And so this was kind of an internal struggle. And then in 2012, I literally like in the middle of the night left my marriage, left my husband. And uh, within you know, th- that experience of getting divorced, I mean, divorce is just the ultimate, besides being queer, which I also am, but was not admitting that to myself yet. Uh, But besides being queer, divorce is just like the ultimate sin in the fundamentalist circles. It's just, it's, there's so much shame associated with it. And I lost, you know, any people that I had kind of maintained my friendships from the church that I had managed to kind of hold on to, just gone.
0: So gone.
2: Yeah.
1: Again,
0: I'm sorry. Just, I just. Again, you experience that, you experience that at 18 and then you experience it because you made a major life choice that, right. Yeah.
1: Right. And in hindsight, I can have, I can have empathy for the people that did this to me because I, you know, when you've come out of indoctrination, you can look back and see people who are where you were and think, well, you know, I, I used to be right there. I used to Mm -hmm. think those same things and believe those same things. But in that moment, all of a sudden, people in my life were either not talking to me or I was getting invitations to go to coffee. And I I didn't have friendships anymore. I just had people who the only reason they wanted to talk to me was to try to persuade me to go back to a marriage that I'm pretty sure would have killed me. And that, I mean, that was brutal. So it was just, you know, three years after I'd lost my entire faith community, I was doing, it. was I was going through it all over again. And I never fully went back to Christianity after that. I didn't consciously leave right away. I still considered myself a Christian, but just like decided to kind of go cold turkey on church for a while and maybe 6 months after leaving my marriage i went back into a church for the first time and had a straight up panic attack and thought oh okay this is not something i can do anymore and i left and that was it it took a while longer for me to you know leaving the church doesn't get rid of all of the beliefs the internalized homophobia the i mean i was still really fundamentally conservative at this point because, you know, you don't get rid of all the the thought patterns and the the toxic need to have all the answers. That doesn't just go away. You have to pick that apart, and usually requires some therapy. (laughs) But yeah, the the divorce was kind of the thing that forced me out of Christianity, finally, forever. And, you know, you can be a Christian without without being, you know, part of a church family or, or whatever. But at some point, I, like, consciously recognized that, Christianity is too it's too tied to like my deepest wounds
2: Mm. that
1: it it would be impossible for me to be a part of that that religion in any way even even a healthy kind of open Christianity progressive Christianity which you know I have some friends that have a really beautiful kind of of affirming and and healing faith that they've found for themselves. And I'm really happy for them, but it's just, it would be like just picking it at old wounds.
0: Yeah. That's, I think that's incredibly well said, just how because of your life experience and because of the way you were treated by the people that you were told was, were the body of Christ like here on earth. I think that that is such a, very salient point about the way that that we all have to navigate relationships to religion on these terms and they're very individualistic but they're extremely valid as well and i think that's such a a good way to describe it is like just recognizing that even if something appeals to someone else it's not healthy for you and i think that does i guess like fly in the face sort of of a lot of progressive spaces that are like, I'm sorry, that was your experience. Here's something different. <laughs> but at the same time, sometimes you just have to say, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. <You> have, yeah. <laughs> the good good for you. Like, just like you said, that's great for you. It's not for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's one of the reasons that I, I went through a kind of a phase where I was, which I think I think a lot of people who leave Christianity do where you become like initially very anti religion in
2: mm-hmm. general yeah
1: and i still i mean i'm very anti american evangelicalism you know mm-hmm. i'm i'm anti these systems but as far as like religion in general or christianity and i say this with just like a giant asterisk next to this because i think it's difficult especially within the structures of american christianity and just the deeply rooted problems in that system. But I, you know, I think that faith can exist without dogma. I've seen people that I love and admire defined faith absent dogma. And so, and I also think that, you know, like in my, my work on social media, I was not given a path out of indoctrination because People, you know, by people who were bashing religion or like, you know, uh, new atheism didn't draw me out of indoctrination. You know, it was, it was, it was people who were, it was Rachel Held Evans, who was a devout believer who wrestled openly and normalized that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I am, even though I'm not a Christian, I try to kind of make some space for that on, you know, on my TikTok account and, and such, because finding your way out of indoctrination is scary. And yeah. for me, at least when I was in the church, like I could not have even fathomed leaving and becoming an atheist
2: mm-hmm.
1: because that was the ultimate evil, but I could handle questioning some of the, the core things that I'd been taught within the larger framework of Christianity.
0: Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit more about that period of going through because you, you you mentioned the way you framed it earlier was before you were v- extremely online, which like the last three years to since 2020 at least, you know everybody's been forced to be extremely online <laughs> uh, as a matter of <laughs> of last resort. however i'm ve- I'm very interested in the way in which things like individual faith shifts or, or what have you occur? And what's been fascinating over the last few years is how much this has moved online. But, of course, these things have been happening in people's lives for years, for decades. So since this was something that started, like, the person that made the space that you needed when you were in that more indoctrinated place embedded in these fundamentalist cultures was someone like Rachel Held Evans. What what were those... Periods like as far as who else you might have connected with, or the sorts of books or content. I know you mentioned Micah Murray as well as Rachel Held Evans' work. Was there anything else that like factored into you being able to explore these things and explore how your convictions were changing?
1: Sure. There were a few things at play. So, Micah and Rachel, for sure. And the early part of my kind of leaving the faith, I would say the earliest part of my kind of deconstruction journey was intensely lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I connected with Micah. I didn't know Rachel held events personally. I connected with Micah on a personal level. We both lived in Minnesota. So mm-hmm. we kind of got to know each other a little bit. But in general, I was incredibly isolated, extremely lonely. You know, I th- I didn't have really anybody that I could talk to about this stuff, about what I was dealing with with the the like complete crisis of identity. I mean, that the scariest like, the scariest moments of my life, the scariest months of my life were that time when I kind of consciously realized that i was not a christian
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then had absolutely no concept of who i was or what i wanted or what i believed i mean it was just it was like it was like stripping back everything like it was like stripping back the the flesh off of my bones and i was just like the skeleton who was i mean barely clinging on to my sanity And the loneliness was excruciating. And then slowly things started to kind of shift. One of the really formative moments for me or experiences for me was after that experience where I went back to church for the first time in like six months and had like a panic attack, I was trying to figure things out and I still wasn't quite sure. I I was starting to get the idea that I was not going to be able to hold on to Christianity. And I decided to read the New Testament. I hadn't cracked the Bible open in, you know, probably you know, at least half a year, probably longer than that. Mm-hmm. And I read through the Gospels. And that was really eye-opening for me because I realized that I had never really been preached the Gospels. I mean, growing up in the church that I grew up in, you know, I learned the gospel stories as a kid. You know, the the loaves and the fishes and the water into wine and mm-hmm. the birth and the death and the resurrection. I kind of learned these these stories, but those were like Sunday school stories for kids, right? Mm-hmm. When I was 10, 11, 12 is when, you know, in my church, you kind of started to attend the adult services every Sunday instead of going to the kids services and once i got into the adult services we didn't really talk about jesus we talked about paul <laughs> like we mm-hmm. spent i think 5 years on the book of 1 corinthians like really in-depth studies of the epistles and the gospels were kind of you know the milk of the bible and the rest of the new testament was the meat the important stuff and so as i'm reading through the Gospels i I started to realize that the way that I had been raised and the things that I had been taught to believe, everything from the way I interacted with family to my politics, it was so far off of what Jesus actually taught mm-hmm. and that is that was kind of the nail in the coffin for me because I thought I cannot. I can't be a Christian because like in my head, Christianity had nothing to do with Jesus. And I'd spent my whole life proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus. And I now had this kind of new perspective on the way that I'd been taught. So that was a really formative for me, but still like just, I mean, I didn't really have community at all. I'd started to build some friendships in Minneapolis because that's where I moved after I got divorced. So I was living in North Minneapolis and I'd started to build some friendships with just, you know, people that i would met, but none of them came from a Christian background, which was awesome. I mean, it was super freeing to have, you know, new relationships that were not centered on church. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, they didn't, I couldn't talk to them about what I was dealing with. They had no frame of reference for it. And it wasn't until I kind of moved through that journey for the most part on my own until maybe see 2015 I moved to Southern California and right around that time I got on Twitter Mm -hmm. and that's when I kind of started to find a little bit of community and that community grew very rapidly I started following people um at some point I you know came across the ex-evangelical hashtag and that kind of Formulated my following <laughs> list, and it—it <laughs> yeah. it was, you know. So I, even though I'd gone through the earliest, most difficult years of leaving in a really isolated state, I now had all these people who were talking about all of these things that I'd just gone through, and it made me feel less insane, you know. Because I—I man, I used to gaslight myself just all the time about this. Like, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, the way that you were raised, like it wasn't that bad. You're being dramatic (laughs) or leaving was not that hard. A lot of people leave religion. A lot of people are raised religious and then leave. It's not that difficult. And then to find this, you know, kind of pre-existing online community that I didn't know had existed. And that was seemed to be growing really rapidly was it was like finding oxygen again after, after so much. I mean, by this point, by 2015, 2016, I had a really great life. I, I had built a completely new community kind of from the ground up. I was in a really healthy relationship and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't alone anymore, but in kind of that internal, my internal life of deconstruction and continuing to wrestle and continuing to find remnants of myself that were still deeply embedded in fundamentalism.
2: Mm-hmm
1: that was still in isolation. Like that part of me was still lonely. And I don't know if this is like, a, I don't know that this is a universal experience, but I still, I mean, years after leaving the church, years after discovering how abusive and toxic and awful it had been, I missed it. I missed it so much. And the thing about leaving, you know, that kind of, of community is that you can never like I will never have that kind of community again. I have amazing community now, but I will never be able to replicate what I had growing up because mm. in order to do that, I would have to I would have to unknow everything that I know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. and yet I can't do that, you know, right. leaving is with the intent of escaping the unhealthy, toxic aspects of that community. And those are precisely, you know, the, the homogeny, the sameness, the comfort, the structure, the black and white. There's no gray areas in the church. It's, you know, you know exactly what your life is supposed to be. You know exactly what your role is. You have all of the answers and you can't get that back. And so the part of me that was still struggling with the, the constant, like the discomfort of the unknown I didn't have all the answers anymore. And that was deeply uncomfortable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that part of me was so lonely and really missed just the comfortable blindness of being in the church. And so to find an online community of people who were openly talking about this, yeah, it was, it was amazing. I was like, oh, okay. All right. I am not the only person who's who's gone through this and who's like, had these same thoughts
0: yeah so yeah. yeah I'm so grateful that like that the types of communities that have grown up in this sort of ad hoc way have helped you in that way. I am um really curious about how uh I think we're at this point now, and this is also where my head is at as I'm thinking about these things right now, especially at, during the first part of this year, is that now these communities have been around a few years like and I think some people's relationships to the communities themselves sort of change over time because I think, yeah. so I'm curious how uh, you had this period of, you know, deep loneliness and then you processed a lot during that period. And then you found people who were talking about it openly across the internet and that you, you felt less alone and, and that that served that need over time. Has your relationship to the community you know, or the online discourse or whatever however you want to label it, has it changed and i honestly there's there's no value judgment here, like I think actually change is we just have we have to talk about it more openly and uh, not assign value to it because i to your point you know the the way the communities we come from work is by stifling change like yes, it's extremely comfortable if you don't change ever <laughs> Yeah. And, and it's extremely comfortable if you fit like a particular white male mold or one that aligns with white male desires. But that's not life for most people. So I'm curious, like how, how your own relationship to those things have changed and how your own needs for different types of communities may have changed over time if that makes sense. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Oh, my relationship with the community has changed many times over. As as I know that you are aware, there have been, especially, I would say, especially in the Twitter space of kind of the ex-evangelical deconstruction community, there have been many ups and downs since mm-hmm. I kind of learned yeah. about the community and became a part of it, you know, back in 2015, 2016. There's been discourse. There's been, you know, people who, when I first joined the community, I kind of saw as like leaders who have kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the word fallen, but like, you know, have been shown to be imperfect.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: And I remember the first time that that kind of, that I kind of witnessed some real serious, stressful discourse in fighting in the evangelical or ex-evangelical community and that was really scary for me like mm-hmm. when I wasn't really a part of it I was more of a lurker in those days but it was it was frightening because it it felt like this precious thing that I had just found was going to collapse but now the kind of the way that this community has sh- has shifted so often and so much the way that my attachment to it has you know ebbed and flowed is one of the most beautiful things about it for me
2: mm-hmm.
1: because in evangelicalism there's not room for that if mm-hmm. the if the community changes it it is gone you know i, I think that My, like the church that I grew up in, they constantly talked about, you know, like search the scriptures daily, the Bereans in the new Testament, like search the scriptures daily to see if it's so they were constantly telling us, like, don't take us at our word, look, read the Bible for yourself and make sure that we're preaching the right things. But if you dared to come to a different conclusion, you weren't Mm -hmm. welcome anymore. And the online evangelical community is made up of a whole bunch of human beings who are you know various levels of traumatized and sure. in various yeah. stages of hurt and healing there's a lot of pain in that community there's a lot of joy in that community of people finding finding their way out and finding kind of a new life and and a, and a freedom and a liberation but there's also a lot of pain and and trauma and hurt and and justifiable anger but a lot of anger and that space is not ever going to be perfect. It's not ever going to be flawless or entirely harmonious. And I think that that's one of the great things about it. One of my favorite things about the ex-evangelical hashtag and kind of the, the community that's grown up around that is that in my experience, at least, it has been primarily focused on stories. You know, it's 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 not it's different from say like the New Atheist Movement, which was a lot about, you know, persuasion and like using logic to dismantle the the idea of religion. My experience with the New Atheist Movement felt like a lot of the same kind of fundamental patterns as Christianity, evangelical Christianity just applied to atheism. Mm -hmm. And when I came into evangelical spaces, my biggest experiences with it were people talking about what they went through, talking about their stories. And it was very personal and focused on, on the human beings who have come out of this rather than on whether or not a certain kind of theology is right or wrong. It was about, you know, I, this, this is my experience. This is what happened to me. This is what this, what this thing did to me. This is how I found my way out of it. These are the things that I'm wrestling with now and it it became very yeah that that center that cent, that centering on human stories i think is very messy but i i like that the event evangelical space is is sometimes messy i think that's good i mean it can be awful <laughs> but i think that overall the fact that this space is permitted to be messy and then I also think back probably like 2017, 2018 is when I started to kind of realize that having ex-evangelical space was not enough to mm, really, mm-hmm. like if I wanted to continue to grow and like truly deconstruct, ex-evangelical space was not enough because ex-evangelical space is primarily white. Yeah. And So that is when I started to like actively seek out spaces that are not centered around me Mm -hmm. and, and our spaces where I am less a participant, more of an observer and a listener. Mm -hmm. The, the books that I started to read started to shift a little bit and that exvangelical space is still incredibly important to me, but it is like my online community, just like my real life community has expanded and changed. And, you know, I I think that's good too. I think it, it, when you have a group of people online who have kind of trauma bonded, Mm -hmm. that's really great. You know, you need that community, especially at the beginning, but you, you have to expand beyond that. You have to, you have to find, you know, ways to learn that are not just a whole bunch of traumatized people sharing experiences with each other because mm-hmm. that has the potential to just feed anger and feed hurt and kind of get into this cycle. You have to, at some point, kind of take that step outside of that and, and start to learn from people who have been equally traumatized or equally harmed or, or, you know, by, by that same community, but in a different way. mm mm-hmm you know, so many people of color that I now, you know, have read or listened to or follow talk about the way that white evangelicalism has harmed them, but they were never a part of it. But because yeah. of like the the structure in, in our politics, the, the power of white evangelicalism in the United States. And that's just like, that's a completely different perspective that is hard to get in ex evangelical spaces.
0: Sure. Yeah. Especially if it's coming from a, from a wide perspective, Absolutely. Cause we just don't have that lived experience and right. Yeah. And I, and I, I am curious about your experience, uh, on TikTok, and as, as now as someone that's, that's actively creating in this space because of a lot of the things you've just mentioned, there is, uh, many of the people that are well-known, like yeah like you and me, possibly to listeners, like you have a much larger audience on TikTok than I do for this show, but a lot of them are are white and are talking about the experiences of white uh, of white people leaving evangelicalism, and there's a bit well, quite a lot about unpacking privilege and understanding the traumas that were done to us and this necessary emotional work of expanding our our worldview and undoing a lot of this indoctrination that that we all were participants in or that we were subjected to. And even that relationship changes over time too, right? And within evangelicalism. I'm curious about how, how you experience this now as someone who does have a distinct, I think your, your followers are, your follower count somewhere in like the 200,000s, I believe, which is a significant size. And your experience of using the hashtag on, on, on TikTok and other places to communicate, and I know this is a long, a long preface, but it, it's just endlessly sort of interesting and fascinating to me, being both a participant and an observer of lots of these spaces. Because like a hashtag is a pretty small, like, simple tool, and a lot of times I I struggle with the best way to describe or frame for myself even the types of communities, is community the right word? Like mm. communities often have guidelines and using a hashtag, there's no fricking guidelines, you know, <laughs> anybody yeah. can use yeah. it. So is it, is the better word culture or following, um, mm. you know, what's the best way to, to frame these things? All of that sort of prefacing aside, what led to you starting to move from, as you said earlier, like being Someone that lurked in these spaces was listening and and was felt sort of like some edification from learning that other people have experienced similar things uh, to then starting to talk about this yourself and then establishing a following on on TikTok, which has just just blown up over the last couple of years in particular.
1: Sure. So I got on TikTok as like a a scrolling person, somebody who just scrolls through TikTok, because I went to undergrad late in life. It wasn't until I was like 26 that I started undergrad. And so I had a whole bunch of friends who were, you know, 18, 19 when I started school (laughs) Mm -hmm. and had a friend, Brayden, who just perpetually would send me TikToks via text. And if you don't have the app, it is such a pain to like open TikToks in Mm you know, a a web browser and watch them. It's just clunky. And so I was like, fine, I'll download the app. So I downloaded the app and then the pandemic hit
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and I I moved. It was my first year of law school. My spring semester moved online. I was trapped in this tiny one bedroom apartment by myself. My semester ended. And then I had like my summer job with a law firm had been delayed like a month and a half. So I had six weeks where I had literally nothing to do. And I'd been on TikTok for a, probably a month or two at this point. And I had, it occurred to me that I had not once come across any sort of ex evangelical, ex fundamentalist content,
2: hmm.
1: which, if you're on TikTok, you know how, how quickly the algorithm picks up on what you interact with and, and who you are and the algorithm had picked up on pretty much everything about me like i had you <laughs> know i was i was on queer tiktok i was on law tiktok i was on adhd tiktok but i was i was there was nothing that i had i had seen and so kind of on a whim one night i started making my 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 earliest content which god it's kind of embarrassing to think about now cuz i'm sure it's not great but my earliest content was me just like taking passages in the Bible that I had been taught one way and just reinterpreting them in a, in a different lens. So one of the earliest was the story of the woman at the well Mm -hmm. and, and her conversation with Jesus, which I had always been taught as like Jesus shaming her for having multiple husbands. And at some point in the last, you know, in my deconstruction journey, I'd come across alternate interpretations of that passage. And that was kind of David and Bathsheba that that story, which I had again been taught as like a slut shaming story and talking about the the way that that story is actually set in context. And I, I picked up a little bit of a following over that. And then my content really started to kind of pick up when I started tying it to my legal education, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I got to law school and saw white Christianity in everything, all of my classes. I mean, I could, it was like, I couldn't get away from it. And it's, it's, it's a blessing because I think that it, it has enhanced my legal education to have this background where I can make these very real connections pretty effortlessly. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Like, I remember I had this this crazy moment in my my 1L con law class. My con law professor, still one of my favorite professors, I got into con law and like a month into the class, this class felt like the most effortless thing in the world for me. And my other classes hadn't felt like that. Like I, I did, I'd done pretty well in law school, but you know, my other classes had taken more effort than Conlaw. And I, my friends who were were brilliant, many of them much smarter than I am, who'd who'd done much better in school were struggling in this class. And then I went to my professor's office hours for the first time. And I was looking at his bookshelves and there's just so much theology on his bookshelves. And I was like, why do you have, you know, like, why is Catherine of Siena on your, or Julian of Norwich? Like, why are these people on your bookshelves? And he was like, oh, I have a PhD in theology. And I was like, okay, got it. And it clicked for me that like constitutional law is taught very similarly to biblical hermeneutics. You know, there's these alternate interpretation methods and kind of the the more conservative you are, the more the literal... You know, singular meaning of the text is originalist, like uh,
0: Gorsuch and stuff.
1: Yeah, 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 Yeah. exactly. And Mm -hmm. and so that started to find its way into my TikTok content, where I was drawing these connections between the history of policing in the United States, the history of race in the United States, and how those interacted with law and white American evangelicalism. And that's kind of how my content started to blow up, and then. I mean, it, it's very strange. Like, it's still very odd to me that I have as many followers as I do. Because when I joined TikTok, it my For You page was, like, mostly people doing either amazing creative things or, like, generic white people dancing. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so there were, I, was like, I was like, I don't think that this is a space for me, but I'm bored and I have ideas. So, like, I'm just going to talk. Mm-hmm. and somehow it kind of picked up but one of the things TikTok has a lot of problems its algorithm has some discrimination issues it sometimes stifles voices of color or people talking about you know certain people talking about certain things they have some issues with monitoring you know reports it's it's automated so If you have a video or an account that pisses off right-wing trolls and they mass report you, your account might get shut down even if you didn't do anything wrong. So there are some issues. But one of the things that I do like about the TikTok space is that it feels much more than Instagram or Twitter. It feels like there's more room for new voices. Because my experience with the TikTok algorithm is that it's kind of cyclical. So you know, I will have a week or two where pretty much everything I post has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. And then there will be, you know, like a week where I'll make a video that I think is probably going to do really well. And it gets a couple thousand views Mm
2: -hmm. and that'll
1: last for a little bit of time. And then the cycle will pick back up. And I've noticed that with, you know, the people that come across my for you page too, you know, some weeks I'll be seeing one person just like a lot. And then I won't see that person on my for you page for a while. Mm-hmm. and i think that that cycle makes space for new voices so there are people in the kind of deconstruction evangelical whatever space on tiktok that started after i did but who have as many or more followers because the the space itself and the way that tiktok functions it i feel like it is less susceptible to this idea of like centralized leadership mm-hmm because there's so much space for new voices. And I really, that's one of the things I really like about that space. The other thing I like about that space is that if you want to engage in discourse on TikTok in any kind of meaningful way, you pretty much have to make a video because the comments are very limited. There's, There's really like, you have such a short amount of space to write a comment on TikTok. It's not like Facebook or Instagram where you can write like a whole thing or like Twitter where it's easy to make an easily readable thread. Yeah. The comments on TikTok are just clunky and unwieldy and they get lost. You can kind of try to make a thread on TikTok and it'll get separated or lost or show up in the wrong order. And so in order to engage with other people, you have to you have to make content. You have to make a video. And while I have had plenty of times where I've had to step away from my account for a week or so because you know the wrong TikTok fed my content to the wrong group of people and I'm getting like death threats I feel like in general I there is less kind of petty fighting between kind of creators that are in the same space at least that's this has been my experience compared to like Twitter because you have to Like you're, you're not talking to a, uh, to an eye, like to a picture, you know, it's a real person, but Mm -hmm. you're, you're watching this, this human being talk in a video. And then if you want to respond to that, the only way to do that effectively is to put your face on a video saying with your words, and it, it just feels like it's slightly less easy to just go off because you have to do more than, than type 240 characters or 280 characters. You have to put a little bit more, you know, when you're saying things out loud and then you're watching yourself back before you post it, you know, there's just, I feel like there's a little bit more room for consideration and thought. And that's not to say that those issues don't exist on TikTok. They absolutely do. But my experience has been that it's in a slightly different way and it, it seems to be slightly less centralized. Yeah. Slightly less centralized around just a few voices and because because of that there's been a lot of kind of interaction between spaces so some of my like favorite discussions that I've had or some of my you know the the things that I've learned on TikTok have come not from the ex-evangelical hashtag or from kind of that general you know my general uh genre of creativity but from you know like black spaces talking about police brutality and black history and black culture. And, um, you know, that, that has interacted with my content in that, you know, I I am able to boost a, a black creator's content talking about appropriation and I'm able to stitch that video and boost their content and talk about, you know, hey, if you were raised evangelical fundamentalist, like you are probably doing this without realizing it, because you know, A, B, C, B, whatever. And so, it, it feels easier to kind of overlap
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and be kind of holistic, and and it feels easier to find access to voices that are not your own, that are different than your own. Twitter is still like my kind of online safe space. <laughs> you know, I have much far fewer followers. And it's just, it, it's kind of a little bubble of like lawyers and evangelicals. And my TikTok space is, like, my for you page is so much more diverse. It's it has so many more perspectives. It it's very thought provoking. So that, just it's just been a very different platform. And I, I sometimes I still feel like I'm kind of figuring it out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's been kind of an ongoing experiment for me. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I just rambled a whole bunch. I don't know no, if that's that I, coherent.
0: No, I I really like that, and I I think it sort of speaks to how some of these spaces continue to evolve. And like, a lot of times, I still feel like uh, I'm the way the template I sort of bring to the world is one of language. If I have trouble articulating something, I have trouble understanding it. I think some people mm-hmm. may do that through visual things or whatever else, but for me, it's it's language, and so. I gravitate towards Twitter and I'm sort of intimidated by TikTok because I don't like my appearance on camera. Like I I don't have I don't have a very commanding presence or you know, I'm very midwestern and take some time to formulate my thoughts when I'm talking out loud. And so so like that just to me like getting a point across in in 1 minute and and all of that seems stressful.
2: <laughs> and <laughs>
0: So yeah, I'll toss off uh, thirty dad jokes a day on Twitter because that's <laughs> sort of what I've gotten used to over the last ten years. But I, I really appreciate your perspective on on how these sorts of new tools enable us. Maybe, uh, do you think it's it's helping people be a little more mindful uh, of of their own sort of biases? Because uh, as you said, like. There, there are like institutional or systemic problems to TikTok. It, it's run by a Chinese company and may have some censorship issues. There's different values at stake there. there the algorithm is opaque and at the same time, alarmingly accurate. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the same time, as you said, like it, it can also surface content in a way uh, and has mechanisms built in that might lend some things to to some more positive aspects, I'm not like rosy, uh, you know, uh, rosy-eyed uh, or rose-tinted glasses about the issues that impact direct communities like evangelical spaces or just broad internet culture. But I appreciate what you've said about how this may actually lead to these spaces being less white, less. Or at least if they're letting, I don't even know like whether even that's the safe safe thing to say or like the uh, safe meaning appropriate or correct thing to say about these spaces and how whiteness figures into them and being cognizant of them and working to make those spaces less white-centered. I'm not sure. <laughs> now I'm rambling because these are still sort of thoughts that I'm I'm working through
1: (laughs) no these are these are things that I think about a lot because part of what I am it's constantly on my mind is that when I am speaking about you know evangelical Christianity like I am inherently speaking about white evangelical Christianity because Mm -hmm. that is where I came from it's my experience you know that's what I was raised in it's what I know I mean, I so often, one of my most common TikTok comments from like trolls is why don't you talk about black churches or why don't you talk about, you know, Islam? Like, because that's not, that's not my space. That's not what I know. Right. Like I, you know, I'm not, that is not my place. That's not my, that's not my role here. But so, so because of, because I can only speak from my own experience and I can only speak about what I know and I'm only willing to do that I'm not willing to you know co-opt uh, the experiences of others for content mm-hmm. that means that the space like the the evangelical space that I primarily in and primarily occupy is going to be primarily white because the people who relate to my experiences and who want to hear from them are going to be primarily people who look like me and were raised like me. And so then the question is like, how, how do I not create a space or a page that is just, you know, that is blind to how these experiences, how evangelical white evangelical Christianity affects other people and interacts with things like systemic racism and policing and the racist foundations of the pro-life movement and, and all of that stuff. So I think, you know, my personal experience with TikTok has been that it is easier for me to find ways to intersect my background with people who, you know, have different experiences and don't look like me. But, I also think that, to some extent, that is because by the time I got to TikTok, this is something I was already conscious of. You know, I was already I was already thinking about this. This was already on my mind. So it has been something that I've been consistently aware of because I happened to come to TikTok when I was kind of already to the point where I was thinking about these issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if that were not the case, then maybe I would not, maybe that part, maybe TikTok would be as much of an echo chamber for me as Twitter is. And I I, I agree, you know, I am I certainly don't have, I don't have rose colored glasses about any of the online spaces. You know, I think that TikTok and, and Twitter, you know, they have real problems and they, right. you know, these, any, anytime you have like these big online spaces, they can, they can do as much damage or more damage than they do good
0: and yeah, and to that point, like a lot of it is beyond the control of the users that use the platforms. Absolutely. Like, I yeah. guess the thing that's really difficult about, about these spaces is they have outsized influence and there's, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, add mentioned the, the CEO of Twitter and see if they, right, <laughs> if they right. Fix it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've done yeah. that. And it doesn't so... work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, it, it does not work. And I've, you know, I've been kind of lucky with my with my TikTok account. I haven't had too many problems with the algorithm, but I've witnessed people have their account shut down because they're talking about living with a disability or they're talking about, you know, they're a Black creator dealing with, you know, talking about systemic racism and 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 teaching from their account. And TikTok feeds their content to the wrong group of people and they get mass reported. And then they have to battle to get their account back. And and that is, you know, these are real issues and, the, you know, kind of just the tip of the iceberg for what these spaces can do, um, especially to marginalized people. So I'm not sure how much of my perception of TikTok as being kind of easier to break into and easier to find diverse viewpoints is because that's been something that's been on my mind. And so it's been intentional or if it's... Because something you know inherent about the app, I do think that the you know it it is generally easier. Like it's taken. I mean, I've been on Twitter since like 2014, 2015, and I have like five thousand followers. And you know, I had a hundred thousand followers within like a year on TikTok. So I do think that it is it is easier for new voices to find a space on TikTok.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But there are other problems, you know, yeah. with the app. Yeah. And I, I, it's funny that you talk about language. I want to come back to that because I'm the same way. Words are, it's part of why I love law school. It's part of why I I wanted to be a lawyer. I I love words. I love writing. And if I can't articulate something in words, then I I, I probably don't have a good understanding of it. And in many ways, TikTok has been kind of an exercise in that for me. Mm -hmm. You know, there have been things that I've wanted to make TikToks about, but if I am not able to articulate it, clearly and with sufficient nuance in 60 seconds, then I can't talk about it. And that has led to some, you know, deeper thinking, research, questioning, writing about certain things, because I, you know, I, I see somebody talking about something on TikTok. I'm like, oh, I should, I should talk about that. That's important. But if I don't yet understand it, there's no way that I'm going to be able to condense a topic, or you know, a supreme court case, or whatever, mm-hmm. into 60 seconds, and also do that without oversimplifying it to the point of inaccuracy, which I think is a big problem on TikTok, just like it is on Twitter. You know, sure, you have yeah. limited space to do things, and most things require more nuance than the space allows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also I also got my job on TikTok, so I can't complain <laughs> too
0: much. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. So yeah, I think that may lead into <laughs> my my sort of final question for you, which is a very open-ended question. And please take it whichever way you would like. Given your experience, your personal experience, your uh, experience as a creator on an app like TikTok, as a law student. Sort of holistically across all of these things that you've talked about, what do you, what do you think is is sort of next, as far as how you perceive your own use of these tools changing over time? I mean, you're going to go from being a law student to a practicing lawyer. Like, I'm not sure if that creates any like legal, uh, you know, the sorts of things, the sorts of professional questions that that one might have to have to adjust to. Uh, just as far as as how you think some of these conversations will continue to evolve, what are you uh, sort of anticipating? And do you think we just we could have some p- positivity, or whether we should just stay <laughs> sort of uh, cautious? I mean, I'm I've I've stayed in sort of a, a cautious day to day sort of thing for almost. Five years now. (laughs) So, but nonetheless, curious about your thoughts.
1: Okay. So one of the best things that TikTok did for me, it was the first time that, like, I had a video really blow up. One of the best things that TikTok did for me is it kind of forced me across, like, the bridge of no return. And what I mean by that is when you enter law school, like one of the first things you're taught in law school orientation, they talk about professionalism. And I I use quotation marks around the word professionalism. Mm -hmm. Because what professionalism means is don't make too many waves. Don't rock the boat. You know, you kind of want to be assertive enough to be taken seriously, but you don't want to have an opinion that would, you know, prevent a a big, you know, uh, elite conservative law firm from hiring you if they saw it on your social media. You wouldn't want to say anything that would prevent uh, a, a federal judge from hiring you as a clerk, or you want to maintain the possibility that someday a president is going to appoint you to the bench. And one of the best things that TikTok did for me accidentally in my 1L year was push me to pass the point of no return where I was like, you know what, it's too late now. (laughs) I have officially expressed too many opinions and too many people have seen those opinions for me to worry about kind of remaining this blank slate that the legal profession can project onto and that has been incredibly freeing. Mm -hmm. And I was, I, I had been, I'm a, you know, first generation student, I have a lot of student loans. And uh, because of that, I was very much planning on going into kind of a big law firm in DC. It's where I, I did two summers during law school and that was fully my plan. I thought it was kind of my only option and because TikTok kind of broke the ice for me and made me realize that I did not want to be a like middle of the road, both sides, blank slate kind of lawyer, I ended up connecting with the person, the lawyer who gave me my job offer. And instead of going into a big law firm, I'm, I'm going to go do the work that I wanted to do from the start, which is civil rights work. And so. For me personally, that has been, that has been the best, like, because I, I was really excited to be a lawyer and when you are in kind of a, you know, elite law school space and you're not from this world, I've always felt very out of place. And so there's this really intense pressure to kind of conform to this neutral, don't have too many opinions, be careful, like censor yourself on social media all the time kind of mindset. And the best thing TikTok did for me was make that a practical impossibility Mm. because it has changed how I approach law school. It has changed how I learn in law school. It has changed my, you know, I get my, I I came out of 1L um, radicalized instead of neutralized. And I think that law students tend to come out of law school one of those two ways.
0: Interesting. Um, Yeah.
1: And TikTok You know, I was TikTok eliminated that intense need to like fit in and be careful because I was so scared. Like I was not made for these spaces. The space is not is not intended for me. Therefore, you know, I need to be really careful so I can make sure that I'm like employable and and professional. And one of the best things it did for me was make that a practical impossibility. As far as what I plan to like do with the space, you give me a lot more credit than <laughs> than, than I deserve. Uh, I don't plan much <laughs> as far as like my TikTok account goes. I mean, I have a notes app where I like jot down ideas for content when they, when they come to mind. But outside of that, I have kind of tried to approach TikTok with the idea that there might be a point once I got to like around like 80,000 followers, I started to kind of freak out because it, it started to snowball very quickly. And I was not fully prepared for that. It felt like a lot of responsibility. It felt like a really scary platform that I could accidentally fuck up at any moment. And for that reason, I have kind of tried to approach TikTok as a tool that I am very, very lucky to have and a platform that I am very, very grateful to have been given, but also something that I might need to someday walk away from. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I've chosen not to monetize my TikTok in any way, you know, I'm not in the creator fund and like, this is not a value judgment on creators who like, if you want to monetize your TikTok, you should. Like it can be a lot of work, and like make whatever money off of that platform you can. But for me, I didn't want that to be like a consideration for me, because I like the first time that I that I posted something that got me like death threats and rape threats. I kind of started to realize that there might be a point where I might need to walk away. Yeah, I'm and that sorry. has not happened yet. Uh, I mean, thank you. It's it's. I mean, it's kind of you know, part of being a woman on the internet. Right. Um, (laughs) but, uh, that has not happened yet. I think I've, I've been able to maintain boundaries because I am privileged enough to not need to monetize it. I am able to, you know, take a week or two off from making content without, without worrying. And that, you know, that is a privilege, but so far I've been, but so I, I don't have long-term plans for that platform (laughs) because, Yeah, it's kind of like a a week by week thing, (laughs) whether or not I'm making content.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I mean, even even in that regard, you know, it's like uh, there's value in that. Like it doesn't it's so funny the way I find myself thinking about things online is like it's both ephemeral and forever. And it's like Mm -hmm. there's value in just making it and publishing it and like, you know. Of course, with the big, you know, big asterisk of like, as long as you're not doing it to harm someone, but <laughs> like, right. but nonetheless, like there's value in doing it even just for the moment and day to day. And so, yeah, I, I think it's great. And um, really interested in the space and the sort of conversations that it's allowing. Uh, Cause I think it, it's just all of these different mediums have different benefits and, and different, mm-hmm. you know, good and bad and assets and liabilities, that sort of thing. So it's, it's really fascinating to hear gone into your own life story and what led you to doing that. And it's been really uh, interesting to explore this expression of evangelical content or community. Again, I still feel like language sort of falls down and, and being able to articulate it exactly what we're all experiencing. Like, um, yeah, I just started this book called Reality Plus that was just published uh, by David Chalmers. He's a this guy, uh, philosopher of mind, and he's just writing about we're on the cusp of like exponential growth of virtual worlds and things like that through AR and like I mean we still haven't learned the lessons from social media yet, uh, and these companies are going to force us to keep going, and so he's sort of wrestling with that. And one of the things that he says in the introduction is virtual worlds, virtual worlds are real. So what we do in them is real. And even if it is just temporary, I've been trying to apply that to the way I think about Twitter and TikTok and everywhere else. And it's been fascinating to hear from you. And thank you so much for sharing all that you did about your own journey of how you've related to these spaces, to this language, to uh, to yourself even, as you've gone through this process. I, I really appreciate it. Is there anything that you would like to plug beyond your, your TikTok for folks here <laughs> uh, at the end?
1: No, no, no plugs. Uh, you can <laughs> follow me on TikTok. It's, it's Lissa, Lissa Jo Stewart, L-I-S-S-A, Lissa Jo Stewart on TikTok. Same handle on Twitter. But, yeah, no other projects except for finishing this semester and hopefully passing the bar exam.
0: So. <laughs> That's it. That is enough.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you so much, Blake. I'm yes. um, a big fan of your podcast, and, and this has been great.
0: Yes. Thank you very much for joining me, Melissa.